The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. To uh, the time of the Buddha. Are there any uh, questions that came up over lunch or anything? Okay. Uh, let's see. We were <coughs> we're in the um, the night of the Buddha's awakening on page thirty three, the third knowledge of the night. Um, he had the first two, which you know, first he he well, going back he he was emaciated and doing these ascetic practices, and then he took some food, and then he practiced the jhanas, and he had a clear seeing mind, and then the first knowledge was of um, recollecting his many past lives. And then the second knowledge was seeing the um, arising and passing away of other beings. And then the third knowledge, who would like to uh, volunteer to read that? When the mind was thus concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of defilement, pliant, malleable, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it to the knowledge of the ending of the mental fermentations. I discerned, as it was actually present, that this is stress. This is the origin of stress. This is the cessation of stress. This is the way leading to the cessation of stress. These are fermentations. This is the origin of fermentations. This is the cessation of fermentations. This is the way leading to the cessation of fermentations. My heart, thus knowing, thus seeing, was released from the fermentation of sensuality, released from the fermentation of becoming, released from the fermentation of ignorance. With release, there was the knowledge, released. I discern that birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task done. There is nothing further for this world. Thank you. So what are we, what on earth is he talking about here? <laughs> I mean, if you, if you hadn't heard this before, it sounds pretty, I don't know, far-fetched or um, complicated. But what, what um, <clears throat> so again, he had this mind that was purified and bright, etc., and uh, he directed it towards knowledge of ending the mental fermentations. And um, I wrote the word up here, asava. <clears throat> That's trans. A lot of these words, um, Pali words, are translated differently by different authors, different translators. And um, Ajahn Jeff, whose translation this is, he um, translates uh, asava as mental formation. Sometimes you'll hear the word taint. But basically, it's um, or defilements. They're you know uh, qualities of the mind that um, obscure its its clear seeing. 
So um, he says he discerned as it was actually present. This is stress. This is the origination of stress. This is the cessation of stress. And this is the way leading to cessation of stress. And stress there is uh, his translation of dukkha. More commonly, <coughs> um, we, we use the word, uh, we've used it a lot here today. What, 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 how do we translate dukkha more commonly in our yeah, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, suffering. Um, and it's uh, it's a hard word to translate because suffering, you know, it brings up, uh, you know, an aspect of dukkha, which is, you know, when we use the word suffering, I mean, that's really this palpable um, misery that we can experience. But there can be an element of dukkha that's just very subtle, you know, this kind of background level we have. Um, you know, some people like the word unsatisfactoriness um, or um, uh, what are some other ones that we, we hear sometimes just um, just not quite right um, or just a little bit off <coughs> excuse me um, so and this formula here um, this is dukkha this is the origin cessation and the way what is that formula yeah, so it's the Four Noble Truths, which um, is really the, I guess the, um, I wanted to use the word gem, I don't know if that's the right one, but it's, it's really the pinnacle of, of what the Buddha learned, achieved, and, and what he, um, he taught. And in fact, um, you know, we mentioned the simile of the poisoned arrow, but there's other places where he, say, he says that, you know, he, all he teaches is um, dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. You know, it's kind of a shorthand of those four noble truths. Um, so, on, upon realizing that this, um, the four noble truths, he then goes on to say that <clears throat> he knew that something had transformed in seeing that, and that um, he was released from this round of rebirths. He, he had this knowledge that he had been released um, and there's nothing further for this world. And that's, that's a very common uh, phrase that you'll see in the suttas describing when somebody uh, achieves an uh, awakening. You'll see that. Yes, yeah. So we have um, dukkha. Uh, so in the suttas, it's it's. Um, is this a little loud? I, I'm getting a little feedback. All right. Yeah, you can just lower it. Okay. Um, the first one is uh, dukkha. That there is dukkha. Uh, some people will uh, say that life is dukkha, and that that might be going a little bit too far, or everything is dukkha. And I think that's going too far. But the truth that there is dukkha, and the second noble truth, is the origin. I went through another one of these. Um, <clears throat> second noble truth is the origin of dukkha. And that's in other passages. There's one in the book. I don't know if we'll get to it. It's um, called tanha, um, or, uh, which is oftentimes translated as craving. It literally means thirst. But that the, the cause of our dukkha is 
that we have this uh, constant craving from one thing to another. And the craving can include wanting things a certain way and not wanting other things. So there's this kind of grasping and, and pushing away. So that's the second noble truth. The third noble truth is a cessation that, that there's actually a way <coughs> the Buddha just discovered, a way out of dukkha. And what is that called? When you, uh, what he just did, when you achieve the cessation of of, uh, dukkha. Yeah, well, we'll get to the Eightfold Path. Yeah, I heard someone say Nibbana, um, which is uh, in Sanskrit uh, and more commonly in our culture, Nirvana. Not the rock group, but. yeah, I mean, this word's marketed a lot, you know, go for a vacation on the beach and experience nirvana. Um, so this was really the goal that the Buddha taught, you know, he discovered, he taught, was this nibbana. And it's, it's a very, um, can get to be a very intellectual discussion as what exactly nibbana is. We had Ajahn Amaro here two years ago, maybe three years ago. He Two years ago, he wrote a book called The Island. I didn't bring it today, but it's... Um, Basically, a whole book on uh, what the Buddhist teachings from the Pali Canon are on uh, what is Nibbana. And it's a, re- it's a very profound book. Um, we have the audio recordings, too, from that uh, day long. And um, needless to say that uh, books and doctoral dissertations and scholarly debates and probably a few brawls have broken out over <laughs> what is the nature of Nibbana is um, and then the fourth noble truth is the uh, is the uh, the way leading they use the word it's maga is the way um, but the path or the, sometimes you'll hear the path or the way of uh, that leads to sensation of dukkha and what is the what is that what leads to what is the path yeah the the noble eightfold path which we'll get into what that is, but um, so Noble Eightfold Path is the fourth noble truth. And here's this word that we talked about earlier, this noble is Arya and Satcha is truth. Noble truth, the four noble truths. Very, you know, really the the foundation of. Um, but then the, in the suttas, he comes back and uh, again and again to the four noble truths as being, really. And one of the definitions of right view is understanding, the four noble truths. And it said that um, you can have an intellectual grasp, just like I, I went through there. But um, people who become awakened have it on a like I don't know maybe a cellular level or you know just very intuitive understanding an insight into the the real the reality of, of these four truths. So he's here he is. Now he's the Buddha. Before he was just the Bodhisattva, the Buddha to be Siddhartha Gautama, but now on this night he achieves his awakening and um, becomes the an Arahant, the first member of the Sangha. And who wants to read page 34? We have a passage 
Gill's translation of the Dhammapada, a very uh, famous passage of um, what is, you know, reportedly the first words that the Buddha spoke upon uh, becoming awake. Thoughts or comments on that passage? So he kind of talks about how he spent many lives in the samsara, uh, searching for the the builder of this house. Um, that can be interpreted in different ways. I think in his book, uh, Gill um, mentions, and I've seen other places that it's. Um, Basically, uh, attachment and craving that um, the builder of the house, what creates this round of rebirths that builds our house over and over again is our ad- attachment, you know, this, this craving, this clinging. And um, he's, you know, he's had a, an enlightenment experience, an awakening to see through that, and that has resulted in, you know, breaking the ridge poles and the rafters and then the mind gone to the unconstructed. Unconstructed is one of the synonyms that are used for nibbana. It's uh, it's probably a sankata. Uh, so we have oh purple. Um, we know this term sankara, which is oftentimes uh, translated um, into mental formations. It's one of the aggregates. And when you put an A in front of it, it's the opposite, and we have a sankara. So the unconstructed, the unmade, the un, unformed, and that's one of the synonyms for nibbana. Um, so the mind gone to that has reached the end of craving. So at this point, um, oh, and I just wanted to show a little. Here's a uh, throughout. <coughs> Asia, you can find uh, a lot of monasteries will have. This is a Bodhi tree. It's kind of hard to see the leaves. And here's a statue of the Buddha sitting under it, various different statues, um, you know, symbolizing this, this night of awaking. And, you know, it's a very significant event in, in Buddhism as a religion or as a, you know, as a, as a spiritual tradition. And um, the tree is considered to be sacred. The... Um, well, it's actually a, a cutting or somehow in the lineage of the original tree is, is present at um, Bodh Gaya, this place, uh, going back to our map. <clears throat> this is where the Buddha was uh, practicing those years, Uddhavela. So he came all the way from Kapilavastu and 
um, was doing those ascetic practices somewhere in this region here, and then the, the, the Bodhi tree, at least it's you know commemorated now all these years later, is in Bodh Gaya, <coughs> um, and it's a huge uh, pilgrimage site that you can go to and see um, the tree, and you can meditate. I've, I've meditated under the tree, and there's a big uh, monument uh, stupa that's built there, and. Uh, people come from all uh, over the world, but a lot of people from different Asian countries who are Buddhist will go there on pilgrimage and they'll circumambulate the the uh, monument. And there's um, when I was there, there were several hundred Tibetans, and they're doing these these 10,000 prost, uh, prostrations, you know, where they do the full body bows. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing uh, spectacle to behold. Very, you know, very. Um, significant uh, site in Buddhism. Um, I'm going to kind of skip over this next part, but apparently after this happened in the suttas, the Buddha was hesitant about teaching. And he, he said, well, this, you know, this Dharma is very subtle. You know, not everyone's going to get it. This is going to be difficult for me to teach. And apparently the, um, a god Saka came down and said, "Oh, you have to teach. You know, you, you know, there's a lot of people who are suffering, and there's people with little dust in their eyes who will benefit from the teachings. You know, so there are people who, you know, will get it. You know, and so uh, apparently he was he was convinced. Well, obviously he was convinced, or we wouldn't be here to go on and teach. Then for 45 years after that. Uh, okay, and uh, you can read that on your own. It's on pages 36 through 37. So um, then now he's decided to teach, and the question was to whom? And this really started his teaching ministry, you know, his, his um, efforts to spread the Dharma. And according to this uh, Theravadan tradition, you know, this is, this is the, the prototype. This is what happens. You have a person who takes a bodhisattva vow. They live these many lives and they do these, practice these perfections. They become enlightened in their final life. They get off the wheel themselves. Then they make a decision to teach other people. They disseminate the Dharma in their time period. They create a Sangha of practitioners the the Buddha then dies and then the Dharma lives for a while and then it dies out. And, you know, the so the tradition has it that right now the Dharma is dying out, you know, that it's kind of reached its peak. It's hard to say, you know, I mean, if you look at the numbers, maybe maybe the Dharma is on the increase these days. But, you know, there's other ways you can say, you know, so of course, some people say, well, what are the true teachings or the true teachings still being followed or are people still getting enlightened? You know, that that kind of all of those questions can kind of come up. Uh, around this. May I ask a question? Yes. Uh, how does Just let's use the microphone here. How does this fit in with the the search for the new Buddha that's being born and, you know, this child that they find that has all this knowledge it could possibly not know at two or three years old? How does that fit in with this Buddha and it, 
like is that little child the continuation of of the Buddha that we're talking about, or how does all that fit in? Um, I I think you might be talking about um, Tibetan lamas who are reborn at the, their tolku. So they're so in the Tibetan uh, branch of Buddhism. They have their teachers, you know, Dalai Lama is a great example, mm-hmm. um, who are um, considered to be uh, reincarnations of, of, of former lives. So the, he's the 14th Dalai Lama. So there was there was a first and, you know, and all the way down, they trace these people. And then they have this whole very interesting process when the that that tolku, that person dies of identifying who's the child that is going to be, you know, reborn as that person and then, you know, be trained and become a, a great teacher. Um, is that what you mean about re- identifying yeah, a child? Yeah, because be, there are a number of films about that and, of yeah. course, how the Chinese stole him and Yeah, that's the pa- all, all Panchen that Lama, stuff. yeah. The, um, there's a great movie called uh, Little Buddha, I think it is. It's, it's uh, I think, Bertolucci did it. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it goes into some of that. Yeah. Um, so is that considered Mahayana? That is, um, yeah, uh, Tibetan is a branch of Mahayana Buddhism, and um, in that, uh, that gets very complicated. They ha- they have developed some ideas about what happens when re- and how the, the whole this whole process of rebirth and there's the bardo state and yeah. you know and and I would say Theravadan doesn't really agree with a lot of that um, that you know that philosophy or that theory of how it's done and. I mean, there's all sorts of legends in Theravada Buddhism of, of, of people being reborn. Like I mentioned Dharma Ruan. We're going to listen to him chanting the Metta Sutta at the end. He was a um, man born in, Sri, he was born in Sri Lanka probably 40, 50 years ago. And at, at age two, he started um, speaking in tongues, you know, like singing this foreign language. And his parents brought him to the local uh, priest and said, you know, what is this? And he said, oh, he's chanting Pali, you know, and of course, no one in the family spoke Pali. And how did he know it? And so it turned out he was actually chanting suttas, this this boy of two, three years old. And, um, you know, later, it, you know, he said that he was um, chanting that from a former life when he was. Uh, living at the, t- I think he said he was living at the time of Buddha Gosa, you know, and he was a monk and he, he learned the suttas and, he, you know, he was remembering from that former life. And of course, he became a national hero and was very celebrated. And, you know, I imagine that was pretty, on some level, traumatizing for a little boy. And later on, he's become a Dharma teacher. But so there's a lot of stories of people who had experience of rebirth and, and in the, in, in, in all of the different Buddhist lineages, but, um, that that particular um, process of the teachers being reincarnated like that is is unique to uh, to the Tibetan. You're welcome. So um, so now we get into the first sutta, page forty one, and um, I think it's worth reading through this. It's a little bit long, but. Uh, um, it's, and it, we've covered a lot of it already, <clears throat> but this will give us a, an idea of what a, a typical sutta looks like. It's the whole sutta written here from 41 to 44 or so, I guess 47. And um, 
there's kind of a uh, a prototype of sutta. You know, the suttas have a beginning, a middle, of an end. Uh, usually, at the beginning, there's a um, bit of background information where it takes place, who is present, that kind of that kind of stuff, and then it gets into the sutta, and then at the end, there's a little bit of information on how you know what was the outcome of this this particular teaching of the Buddha. So, according to the legend, after he became enlightened, the Buddha went um, to find these five ascetic uh, men that he was practicing with, who had you know kind of blown him off because he, he was living the, the high life now and eating rice instead of you know starving himself. Um, so he finds them, and initially they were um, hesitant, but quickly came around. And so this. Uh, who would like to read starting on page 41? There's, you know, you can read like a chapter or so at a time. I, I, I can take some, I'll, Why don't I start? I'll take my turn and then uh, turn it over. So, I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying at Varanasi in the game refuge at Isipatana. There he addressed the five monks. There are these two extremes that are not to be indulged in by one who's gone forth uh, as a samana. Which two? That which is devoted to sensual pleasure with reference to sensual objects, that's base, vulgar, common, ignoble, unprofitable, and that which is devoted to self-affliction, painful, ignoble, unprofitable. Avoiding both of these extremes, the middle way realized by the Tathagata, producing vision, producing knowledge, leads to calm, to direct, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to unbinding. So let me just back up for a moment. Um, I have heard, so um, many suttas begin with this phrase, evang mi suttang. The asankata don't want to be erased. I'll have to use some water. Um, Evang me and this is supposedly, um, so this is translated, sometimes you'll hear it as, thus have I heard, or I, um, Ajahn Jeff here has it, I have heard, and, um, and this is that word, sutta, not with two T's, but with one T, heard, and uh, emphatic, evang, and then I have heard, Um not, so this is Ananda, Ananda speaking at the um, first council saying, this is how I heard the Buddha say such and such. And rather than saying this is you know, the law or this is how it is, it's just saying this is what I've heard. And I, I like that, that it's, you know, it's, it's not dogmatic. It's just, he's just saying this is my experience or this is, this is what I've heard. So he starts out, and then it's at this Varanasi, and this is an actual place that's still in... Uh, on our map here. So he became enlightened here and then traveled uh, about 200 kilometers to uh, Benares, Varanasi. Now it's in a very thriving town in India. And Isipatana, which is in modern day called Sarnath, was uh, like a, a deer park. It was a game refuge, I guess he calls it, um, outside of it. And these are all pilgrimage sites that you can go to. And um, that's where he met up with his um, his old chums and started talking to them. 
And he talks about, we hear oftentimes the Dharma is called the middle way, um, you know, between the two extremes of self-indulgence uh, and self-affliction, um, self-neglect. And, um, you know, I think that really speaks to the balance, you know, in practice that we can get it, you know, go too far to an extreme. And, he, you know, this also encapsulates his life. You know, he grew up in this, you know, supposedly this very pleasurable uh, youth where he had a lot provided for him. And then he left that and lived this kind of very self-afflicted life of doing these ascetic practices. And then he found that the way to the awakening to Nibbana and unbinding there on 40, page 42 is how is the word that um, Ajahn Jeff uses to translate uh, Nibbana. He calls it unbinding. Um, there are some, some authors leave it untranslated since it's such a, a loaded term. Who would like to read the passage under the Noble Eightfold Path? We're all kind of tired. <laughs> Thank you. And what is the middle way realized by the Tathagata? That producing vision, producing knowledge, leads to calm, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to unbinding. Precisely this noble eightfold path, right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is the middle way realized by the Tathagata, that producing vision, producing knowledge, leads to calm, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to unbinding. Thank you. So... um very important, uh, the, this Noble Eightfold Path. I mean, this is really the Buddhist blueprint for uh, achieving awakening and also living, you know, in this, in this moment, uh, uh, a wholesome or skillful, we used the term earlier, a wise or skillful life, um, and that's doing these, these eight things. Later on in the book, it gives, you know, what the Buddha taught those, those eight uh, things are in more detail. But for right now, We'll just leave it at, at those those eight factors. Um, any questions on on this so far? Okay. How about the four noble truths? Does anyone want to read a paragraph or two there? Okay. Thank you. Uh, how many? However many you'd like. Just read until you want to. How do I know when I get to number four? <laughs> Now this, monks, is the noble truth of stress. Birth is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are stressful. Association with the unbeloved is stressful. Separation from the loved is stressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. And this, monks, is the noble truth of the origination of stress, the craving that makes for further becoming, 
accompanied by passion and delight, relishing now here and now there. For example, craving for sensual pleasure, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming. Shall I go on? Yeah, the, the, yeah. Mm-hmm. two more. No, go. If you could go ahead. Um, so that's the first noble truth and the second noble truth, and then the next paragraph is the third noble truth. Okay. And this, monks, is the noble truth of the cessation of stress, the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release and letting go of that very craving. That would be the third noble truth? Yes. And this, monks, is the noble truth of the way of practice leading to the cessation of stress. Precisely this noble eightfold path, right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Thank you. So you can get a sense from this so far, you know, just all of the repetition that goes in. You know, these phrases are said over and over again, and that's, you know, that conduces to the oral tradition that this was in to remember it and repeat it, and it also helps one learn it, and I think it helps kind of inculcate it into our our practice. Um, That first paragraph... Uh, wow, you get a really good. I, I get a really good sense of um, what is dukkha. Well, it's a lot of things, right? Birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, um, association with unbeloved. So things that we don't want having to deal with, and separation from what we do want, what we love. That's dukkha, and not getting what we want is dukkha. And then these five clinging aggregates. Um, so this is a very important aspect of um, many passages. Upadana. Kanda. Um, or the five aggregates of clinging, how it's translated. And this is the uh, aggregates. This is the way that um, the Buddha, one of the ways the Buddha broke down this human mind and body into these five categories uh, called the aggregates. And that um, really the nitty-gritty of how we suffer, and this is really um, portrayed more vividly in, in the uh, dependent origination, but is that we basically cling to these five aggregates, you know, and that's um, that includes the form, which is all of the physical, our physical element, uh, feelings, which um, is pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, uh, perceptions, how we label things a certain way. And then the sankara um, is the formations, like uh, these are how we um, basically um, construct uh, thoughts about and sto- whole stories and you know proliferate on different ideas, the, the formations. And then the last one is consciousness, 
I think these are all in the book at a later chapter. We're not, we won't go into too much deal, detail, but um, those are all different ways that our minds work. And then, you know, specifically, not just as an interesting fact about our minds, but as, as a way to see clinging happen. And you can work meditatively with this as a, um, as a uh, um, way to uh, see how one clings. For example, you know, we have an experience and it's very pleasurable so that we get the feeling tone. This is, uh, this is the second of the aggregates. They get this feeling of pleasure and then kind of see how the mind immediately takes that pleasure and says, oh, I want more. Or, you know, this is, you know, this is wonderful and how can I make it last? If it's unpleasant, the mind will immediately say, oh, that's, I, you know, I really don't want this. How do I get rid of it? So, that, so it's a, um, it can be a very practical tool. It also happens, all of this is happening so fast in the mind that it can be really challenging to, to, um, to see it. And it helps to have a, a calm, balanced mind. So that's the first noble truth. The second noble truth, um, you know, as we mentioned earlier, it's craving that is the causes dukkha, the origination of dukkha. And the third uh, noble truth is is uh, letting go of, abandoning that craving results in cessation of the craving, of the uh, dukkha. And then again, the fourth noble truth is the noble eightfold path. <clears throat> um, I'm going to kind of accelerate a little bit. So he goes on, on page 44, he goes on from... You know, first he told what the the truths are, and then he talks about the tasks. So each each truth has is not just a nice story, a nice philosophy. It's actually we have to do something with it. So, for example, um, the noble truth of stress, the first one, that has to be uh, comprehended. So, in in order to you know practice this pathway. We have to see dukkha in our lives. We have to realize, you know, most of the time it's really under our radar. You know, we do uh, things that um, are, you know, paradoxically we're trying to have a happier life, but they can be uh, really the sources of dukkha. Uh, For example, you know, we get, uh, oh, I have a little update now. I've got to get rid of that. Um, we will, for example, um, cling to um, an experience of, of pleasure, let's say eating. And, you know, of course we need to eat as sustenance, but it, bec- it can become, you know, even an addiction in some cases we see. Or um, I'm trying to think of some other examples of seeing uh, dukkha at play in our lives. Um, you know, I guess it's just to get down to understanding um, when the things that we do uh, result in uh, in harm and actually cause dukkha. Yes. So, uh, looking at the the first one and eighth full path, the right view, that sounded like the punchline to me. Like that's where the snarl, the web of how it all gets confusing because how we don't know what the right view is. There's different right views and examples of suffering that I learn when I see through other people. 
an example of a person I knew that after a stroke, he was going to try to see if he could write his name for the first time. And his reaction when he couldn't write his name was, well, I'll be darned. I can't do it. That's fascinating. Whereas 99% of the rest of people would be devastated, scared, and just wrapped up in suffering. So that always, that just was charming to see that. On the other hand, other people who uh, might say, oh, I, I can't see after a head injury or whatever, but that's not a problem. I can still drive. They're not suffering, but they have a different view than I have. So this is just kind of leaves me at, oh, well, that's that. <laughs> And that's where I suffer. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, When you say that's that, that you know, you mean it seems like it's a a, a paradoxical trap that you can see it, but how do you get out of it? Or that maybe I don't get out of it. So just there it is. That's I don't know at this. I'm new at this. So yeah, I just noticing that. That's all I can do. And I have a. I, I have a right view where I need to try to set somebody straight sometimes if I don't think they're, they're if I think that they're going to cause injury to somebody else if they can't drive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A responsibility, I guess. A, an arrogant sort of, I don't know. I, that's that snarl. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think you put your finger on it, that the right view because um, Really, wrong view is another way of stating that is ignorance. And really, you know, uh, I would say Buddhism and a lot of what the, you find in the suttas is really attributing um, our dukkha, our suffering, to that ignorance. You know, I mean, we don't we don't know better. I mean, I think everyone inherently wants to be happy. You know, but we kind of go about it in these these. Uh, a lot of people go about it in dysfunctional ways. So. Um, in the suttas, you see passages where right view, and it's, I wrote it down in this book, is defined as understanding the Four Noble Truths and not just, you know, this, this verbiage that I wrote out here. I mean, we can get a, a certain level of understanding from that, but right view is really understanding that, you know, to understand that dukkha is everywhere and that it's just, you know, an aspect of life. It's really one of the characteristics and that what causes it is that craving that we have, you know. And then how to how to you know all of, so all of the steps and to really understand those at a at a deep intuitive um, insight uh, level is really um, uh, how we you know dispel the ignorance that we're we're trapped in and that creates that suffering and um, you know I keep mentioning the dependent origination the first link on the the chain of the twelve links is is ignorance you know so wrong view and not not understanding the way things are. So it's very key. That's that's a good point you made there. So I just wanted to add a comment that an, another way of looking at this p- path is that we think of path as linear and someone else mentioned today linear. But I've... Um, I also like the image of the path as a mandala. So it's a, it's a circle and, and you really can. So it's not that you, st- you have to start with the right view in order to, you know, to go on and do the other things. Um, that, that at any point you can enter. That's my, that's, 
that's a way that I found it helpful to look at it. Um, First, obviously, you touched on an important subject because you've brought up a lot of discussion for us, so thank you for that. I just wanted to say one of the other tools besides the one that Carolyn mentions that's extremely helpful to me and this idea that there's a kind of almost a spiraling process about what's called a path, but we just go round and round and round. Hopefully what happens is that the the circle gets larger and larger and more spacious and holds more of our experience and our life over time. But when you talked, for example, about the individual who's blind and wants to keep driving, one of the ways I keep my mind from suffering too much with the complexity of some of this is that the the teachings acknowledge that we live in a relative domain and we're talking about questions that may be um, may involve thinking in kind of beyond the everyday functional domain. And in the everyday relative world, we may talk about non-self, but I got to have a name and a driver's license and I better remember that or I'm going to, you know, get myself in trouble and I've got to know that if I can't see, I can't drive and or if I see someone else who can't drive, it would be skillful to stop them. So I think there's a whole way in which in our relative everyday lives, we have to find functional ways to deal with certain situations. And yet in the process of doing that, we can look deeper and deeper and deeper into what we're experiencing and begin to get to a kind of truth with a capital T that may be a little different than the truth that the guy who's blind better not be out on the road. And that loosens it up a little bit for me sometimes to think, ah, okay, got to carry around this relative kind of self, but in a deeper capital T truth sense, maybe it's a little softer and more permeable than I've thought. Does, does that help at all? Okay. Thank you. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, so the f- task of the first truth is to comprehend it, to see the dukkha. <clears throat> the task of the second uh, noble truth, that is the craving, it needs to be let go of or abandoned. That's the task. In order to to do this, we have to. When we see craving, uh, when we see dukkha, look for the craving, and we see when we see that craving, let go of that craving. It's easier said than done, but that's the that's the task that um, the Buddha goes on to to associate with each of those truth. Um, and then the cessation, uh, the third noble truth, cessation of dukkha, that has to be experienced or realized. So in those moments where we're able to um, let go of craving and then see the dukkha um, disappear, go away, to really take that in, you know, and uh, during that day long with Ajahn Amro, he talked about that, that, you know, maybe we there's this big goal of becoming a full arahant. Maybe that's that's maybe that's too high for us in this moment. But maybe, you know, each time that we get free of a of an attachment and and we realize that suffering is is um dissipates, you know, is extinguished there, to really take that in and, you know, kinda of take that as a moment and to to learn it, you know, in our minds and in our hearts, maybe on a cellular level that um that's uh you know, that's really the goal, that's what we're working for. And and, you know, this can involve deep deeply ingrained habit patterns that we have in our lives. And if we find a new way of relating for, let's say, with a loved one, with communication, 
keep using that example or, you know, what, whatever it is, whatever um, activity that keeps getting us stuck and ha- having us suffer, if we can, you know, figure out a skillful way of working with it and see the dukkha not arise, you know, or see dukkha that's arisen um, to, be a, uh, to go away, that um, really, you know, can be the goal of practice is to continually do that and, and, and expanding in these wider circles, as was said. So that's the third truth. And then the fourth truth, which is this eightfold path, that um, has to be developed and cultivated. This is, you know, really where the rubber meets the road, right? Um, this is the nitty gritty of what we have to do, you know, and, and for each one of those eight um, eightfold paths, each one of those, there's, you know, a task or there's a way to work with it uh, that if we really want to um, have this freedom in our life, we need to um, to work it, you know. Things like right speech, you know, what what's right speech? Well, part of right speech is not lying. You know, I mean, it's pretty obvious. You're not going to have right view if, if you're telling a lot of lies to yourself or others. And for each one, there's, you know, there's a functionality, important aspect of it. So those were the tasks. And then um, he goes on to make a statement uh, that he realized all of these, this knowledge and vision and became uh, fully awake. And again, he's seeing, this is on top of 46. He kind of makes this statement, unprovoked is my release. This is the last birth. There's now no further becoming. And um, anyone like to read uh, from there what he said or what, it, what was said in the Sutta passage on 46th, starting with that is what the Blessed One said. And by the way, blessed one here is a translation of the of the Pali term Bhagavad. You've probably heard of the Bhagavad Gita. And Bhagavad just means um, Bhagavad. Bhagavad Gita is a is a Hindu text, um, but it's the same word. And Bhagavad just means a blessed one or are, you know, uh, venerable ones, uh, supreme one. Um, here it's translated as, as the blessed one. Any uh, readers for this part? Maybe a couple of paragraphs. This is what the Blessed One said. Gratified, the group of five monks delighted at his words, and while this explanation was being given, there arose to Venerable Kadanya the dustless, stainless Dhamma eye. Whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation. And when the Blessed One had set the wheel of Dhamma in motion, the earth devas cried out, At Varanasi in the game refuge at Isipatana, the Blessed One has set in motion the unexcelled wheel of Dhamma that cannot be stopped by priest or contemplative deva, mar, mara or god, or any mara or god, or anyone in the cosmos. On hearing the earth devas cry, the devas of the four kings heaven took up the cry, the devas of the 33, the yama devas, the, the tusita devas, the nimaranati devas, the parinima, blah, blah, the devas of Brahma's uh, retinue took up the cry. At Varanasi, in the game refuge at Isipatana, the Blessed One has set in motion 
the unexcelled wheel of Dhamma that cannot be stopped by priest or contemplative Deva, Mara, or God, or anyone at all in the cosmos. Thank you. So, um, yeah, so this is coming to the end of the sutta where the Buddha gave his teachings and then we hear about what happened. You know, usually what happens is um, you hear this part that, that was just read. Uh, this is what the Blessed One said and gratified the, those present were gratified in his words. There's one sutta where those presents were not <laughs> gratified with what the Buddha said. That's uh, the first sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya. And uh, I guess the monks were not happy with what they heard the Buddha say. That, but you don't really, usually it's, you know, everyone says, oh, that, that, that sounds great. Let's do it. Um, and then this, uh, this dustless Kandanya, one of the, the five there, gets this dustless, stainless Dhamma eye. And that, what that is, is um, a description of the first stage of, a, of awakening. So there's four stages of awakening. The fully awakened being is an arahant, um, and the first stage is called stream entry. I'm not going to go too much into that now, but so that's that's a uh, common phrase that's seen when somebody is uh, reaches stream stream entry. They have this uh, deep, profound insight into whatever is subject to origination is subject to sensation. Well, we all know that intellectually, but I guess understanding this, you know, this fundamental aspect of impermanence, of constant inconstancy, of, of constant change is um, profound enough uh, for to realize that first stage of, uh, of awakening. And then a bunch of uh, um, uh, beings, heavenly beings, cried out and heralded and, and you know, made ex- exclamations about um, this. It talks about uh, setting in motion the wheel of the Dharma. And that's what this sutta is called, the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, setting the wheel of Dharma in motion. And the, the wheel of Dharma really is the, the teachings, um, thought to be a, you know, a wheel that, that goes on. Um, we'll have some pictures in a moment. I, I'll just finish this last part on page 47. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, that would be, see, it's not Deva, what the Pali term is for Mara, Mara, yeah, I'm, I'm forgetting the, the Pali word, um, you know, Devas are kind of like, I guess in a Christian sense, angels, but sometimes those are, those are minor gods. Um, it might be the term Brahma uh, that's often used. I don't, I don't have the Pali in front of me, but oftentimes they use that, that term, the generic term for God. Uh, or it can also mean, and it's a little tricky with Pali because it's not, cap, you know, we, 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 in English we capitalize our proper nouns, and they, they don't do that in Pali. Um, yeah, and, and it's interesting because usually, uh, and I don't—I just copied this verbatim from um, the Access to Insight website because they say if you're going to quote it, that's what you should do. You shouldn't alter it. Um, but usually, you'll see that word translated with a lowercase g. So that's that's interesting. And um, 
I don't know if that's something that Ajahn Jeff changed or what, but this is his translation. Um, but that's it's good that you you pointed that out. I think that really pertains to our earlier conversation. Uh, so um, in that moment, that that instant, the cry shot up right to the Brahma worlds, and this ten thousand fold cosmos shivered and quivered and quaked, while a great measureless radiance appeared in the cosmos, surpassing the F effulgence of the devas. <laughs> then the blessed one exclaimed, so you really know Kandanya, so you really know. And that is how Venerable Kandanya acquired the name Anya Kandanya, Kandanya who knows. So that's the, that's the end of that sutta. Um, now tradition has this as the very first sutta the Buddha gave. However, a number of scholars have said that, you know, in the earlier part of his teaching ministry, he hadn't worked out uh, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. There's ways that they've gone back looking at different strata within the, the, the suttas. And it's thought that the Sutta Nipata, this was one of uh, the minor books in the minor collection, is, is thought to be one of the earlier um, layers of the suttas that were, that were initially taught. And um, looking at the, the language and the, and the teachings in there, you won't find the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path. So there's some belief that there was an evolution, you know, like any teacher for 45 years, they're going to develop their, their theories and find more effective ways to communicating the, the practice to practitioners. And, you know, maybe there will be even some um, areas of uh, controversy or uh, self-contradiction. But, um, but this is supposedly the first. And there's a number of symbolic representations of uh, the Dhamma Chaka. This is kind of a diagrammatic one. So there's eight spokes, just like sometimes you'll see eight, sometimes you see 12 or more. Uh, but if there's eight, it's the um, Noble Eightfold Path uh, of that. This is um, a Tibetan. You'll see this a lot. So this was the given in the deer park, and these are little deer and there is the eightfold, uh, the Dhammachaka in the middle of that. This is, this is Mount Kailash in the background. Um, this is a photo I took on another pilgrimage with John Travis where we went to, and this is really a, a Tibetan Buddhist um, uh, pilgrimage site, but it's a, it's a famous mountain in, in Tibet. Um, but I encountered the Dhammachaka there. And you see it in a lot of uh, Buddhist imagery and art. And then this is um, a very famous top, those Ashokan pillars that were put up all over the place. Um, some of them had this on top of it. These are four lions. Um, and this is a Dhammachaka with many spokes. I, don't, I can't really count them. Sometimes you'll see a wheel with 12 spokes, uh, which is the 12 uh, links of dependent origination. So it's a uh, it's one of the symbols of uh, the Dharma. Any questions on that sutta? That's a very typical format that you'll find the suttas in from beginning to end. And this one just happens to be, you know, chock full of these pithy teachings on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Um, so that's in this volume here, the Samyutta Nikaya, the, the connected discourses. I, you know, I, again, I downloaded it off of Access to Insight if you want to read 
read it. Um, Richard Shankman did a day long on the first three suttas, and he went into this in some depth. This particular sutta, and there's a lot of there's actually uh, several books out there written just on this one sutta because there's you know I mean there's so much there, especially if you break down the Noble Eightfold Path and really go into what each one of those is, you know, which is not really done directly in the sutta. It's done elsewhere, and and I have a copy of that in the in later in the book. I don't know if we'll get to that, but. Um, So I think what we might do is um, I have the second discourse next. um, But rather than going through that, I think I'd like to kind of move on to some other teachings. Um, The second discourse was very famous. It's called the Anatta Lakana Sutta. And, you know, for your reading later, it's on uh, pages... 51 and onward. Um, That's uh, worth looking at it. In that, the Buddha gives these very concise teachings on anatta, uh, not self. It's in the title of the sutta, Anatta Lakana. Not self, so not to self, and anatta is not self. And um, this forms part of the three characteristics. We already did uh, the first one is dukkha, which is suffering, and then um, anicca, no diacritics in anicca. That's, uh, what is that one? Um, it's impermanence. Dukkha. So these are called the three characteristics. Very important Buddhist concept that's given in, in several suttas. The T Lakana, three characteristics. Um, and this is in the book too, in, in some a little bit more detail. Um, very important to understanding the Dharma and the teacher, the teachings is uh, those three characteristics. So in the Anattalakana Sutta, the Buddha um, goes into that. He also talks about the five aggregates, seeing not-self in each of those five aggregates, um, and also the um, in each in the dukkha in those. And it said at the end of that second discourse that, uh, that he taught that all five of the... Um, those ascetics that he had come, that he had been with all that time, and he'd come back to teach, became fully awakened, so that there were six uh, arahants at that point, and that was really the birth of the sangha. That now it wasn't just the Buddha um, who had this knowledge, but there were actually six uh, men at that point, uh, soon to be men and women, who were fully awakened. And uh, understood on some very profound level these four noble truths, and had made some transformation in their own mind, minds and body uh, regarding that. Any questions or comments anyone wants to make on on that?
Okay. So it's um, about 2.45. I think we might... Just trying to look at my schedule here to keep us... So we can try and finish up as much today. Keep us on task. Um, Would this be a good time for a break for everyone? We've been going about an hour now, this, second, this afternoon session. We could do a, uh, a meditation period now, break whatever you need to take care of yourself for the next half hour, let's say. And I'll, re- uh, I'll ring the bell at about 3.15 and we can reconvene. And uh, again, if, um, maybe we could have a little, uh, some areas of silence um, in the main, in here, and then... Um, Maybe for people who want to walk out in the back parking lot, that can be silent too, for those who want silence. And those who don't, feel free to talk. 